Welcome back to the Anglo Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. Episode 79 is full of strange, swirling tales, where Denise Rates, our intrepid Boer narrator, has been separated from his brother near Rustenburg after riding to fetch his all important saddlebags. Then, to make matters much worse, his only remaining horse died. This left the youngster in a pickle, adrift on the felt, alone, with his only plan now to reach General Kuestelare, who is operating somewhere in the west. Maybe he could obtain a couple of horses there, he thought. Little did he know that Delaray's commando had been hit by the same horse sickness that had put paid to his favourite horse, Malpert, then his replacement animal a few weeks later. Across the region, the sickness was taking its toll on all commandos, as well as the British cavalry and mounted infantry units. Remember, we learned in a previous podcast that Rates found newspapers in an abandoned farmhouse and learned of Queen Victoria's death in February, and that Kitchener had replaced Roberts as the commander-in-chief of the British forces in South Africa. What really caught his attention, though, was the exciting news that Commandant Kritzinger and Judge Herzog had made it south of the Orange and were ranging deep into the Cape Colony. I resolved at once to go south in search of them, he wrote in his book, Commando. This seemed a little hopeful. At that point, he was 500 kilometers from the Cape border without a horse and alone. But my mind was made up and abandoning all thought of overtaking my brother, I threw my saddle across my shoulders, and carrying my rifle in one hand and my cooking tin in the other, I started back on a journey that was to take me very far indeed. As he trudged south, he saw clouds of dust in the direction of Pretoria to the east, and hurried into the bush. A British column swept past as he watched. Once they had left, he emerged. Finally, he reached the foot of the old wagon post trail at the bottom of the Machalisberg Mountains, and there, his luck changed. He bumped into 50 Rustenburg men who had walked to the same spot overnight. They were also horseless, and this ad hoc Boer infantry company were then forced back into the mountains as the British column changed direction and headed back. We fled up the heights to a gorge near the top, he writes, where we lay secure. But the weather took a turn for the worse, and it rained for eight days and nights without stopping. They were huddled under overhanging rocks, without a fire to stay warm, as the rain lashed down, chewing on their biltong in the midst of this biblical deluge. There was no chance of descending the mountain because the British troops had taken shelter in all the abandoned farms in the vicinity, also waiting out the weather. The knowledge that our opponents were comfortably housed merely added to our misery, and every time that the clouds and the mist swayed aside, we could see smoke cheerfully ascending from every building and shack below. Eventually, the rain eased, and the Boers on the mountain watched the British depart. Rates was in some difficulty. His boots had now rotted away, and he was forced to walk down the steep slope, sharp stones cutting his feet. They were lacerated and blistered by the time he arrived at the foot of the mountain, and there he crawled into a tobacco shed to recover. It took him a fortnight before he could walk again, and when he did, it was on brand new sandals. One old Takar actually walked 20 miles to fetch a piece of leather of which he knew to make me a pair of rawhide sandals, which served me well for many a month to come. Takar is Dutch for a rough rural man, somewhat unkempt in appearance. 
The Takar was part of these 50 Rustenburg men who were Dopus, a religious sect said to be like the Quakers. They held views that rates regarded as strange, primitive even. But for all their primitive ways, they were brave, unspoilt men, rates observed. Most wanted to find General Kurs de la Rey, which meant crossing over the Macharisburg Mountains southwards, then walking on the open plains, which was a dangerous proposition. They had no choice but to take the risk and embark on what they thought was a 200-mile journey. The problem was, they were also carrying their saddles, rifles and ammunition, food and other equipment, and they had no hope of finding horses. Their equipment was heavy. Brates then had a flash of inspiration. Not far from where they had begun to shoot and trap buck and salt and smoke in preparation for the long walk lay the burnt-eyed wagons where Jan Smuts's commando had caught the British earlier in the year. After inspecting the almost 100 derelict hulks, they managed to cobble together a single wagon out of bits and pieces and then found oxen hidden nearby in a gorge and protected by a handful of Delaray's men. This was a godsend, and after convincing the Boer guards they were on the way to fight, secured a dozen of the precious trek oxen to haul their blackened wagon full of saddles and other equipment. The doppers were borne on the felt and inspanned the animals quickly, then they were off. Fifty men and a partly burnt-out wagon heading south. It rained again as they headed up the Macalisberg Mountains that night, but by the next morning they were on the flatland to the south. There, they began to catch sight of the destruction that Lord Kitchener had ordered across South Africa, the Great Drive, or Hustling, as the British troops called it. The counterpart of the Great Drive we had witnessed in the east had since rolled over this area, leaving behind it only a blackened ruins and trampled fields so that our course lay through a silent, unpeopled waste across which we navigated like a lonely ship at sea. As he walked, he took stock of the men around him. Remember, rates had been raised in towns, although he was quite comfortable on the felt. There was a distinctness about these men that fascinated him. My companions were big, heavy-bearded men of the old school, he says, who looked on me as something as an alien, for I was town-bred, and they did not always understand my ways, but they were simple, kindly souls, and we got on well together. This town-rural divide remains true to this day as it does around the world, the old school and the new school. He was impressed by what he saw day after day, travelling with the old-school dobbers. I got a truer insight into the fine courage and high qualities of their fighting men during this journey than at any other time of the war. Five days later they met two women walking together, one a Boer and the other a black servant. With them were two small children. They had hidden their wagon nearby, but the oxen had been captured by the British. The wagon was packed with supplies and the women were cheerful enough and told the doppers that Costa de la Rey was at Ritpan near a place called Tafukop which was only a day's walk away to the southeast. They changed direction hurrying now, and later that day they came across the camp which had been set up around a natural lake called a pan, shimmering in the sun, Ritpan. There was a considerable number of wagons on the shore of the lake, with many horses and cattle out at graze, and we were just congratulating ourselves on having at last found Delaray when we saw a sudden stir. Men began running for their horses, the oxen were driven in what looked like a frenzy, something was wrong. Moments later, horsemen galloped past them from the lake, shouting that the English were close by. So sighing with resignation, they turned their burnt-out, battered ox wagon and followed the men for six miles, where they were then overtaken by other boers who said it was all a false alarm.
Delaray's men were ashamed and looked away in embarrassment. But later, Rates found out why they had rushed away in such a panicked state. The general that morning had suffered one of his few defeats in a British surprise attack, losing over a hundred men in the firefight some distance away from Ritpan. The wounded had rushed back into the camp, spooking the rest into their headlong dash. Finally, Rates and his Dopor companions made it to the water's edge, where a thousand mounted men and two hundred wagons made for an impressive sight after weeks of loneliness. He walked to General Delaray's wagon, where he was to see a most unusual spectacle. Attached to his person was Prophet van der Rensburg, writes Rates, a strange character with long flowing beard and wild fanatical eyes who dreamed dreams and pretended to be possessed of occult powers. Some historians say that Delaray inspired a kind of millenarian movement, and this van Rensburg was his magic man, his link to the divine. It's one of the reasons why Delaray remains an inspiration today with contemporary Afrikaans pop songs commemorating his actions. Reitz spent days here, recovering and reconnecting with Boers from the Transvaal. One morning, Prophet van Rensburg was in full flow, and Reitz recounts, We were congregated around General's cot. Van Rensburg was expounding his latest vision to a hushed audience, says the less than impressed Metropolitan Reitz. It ran of a black bull and a red bull fighting and goring each other, until at length the red bull sank defeated to its knees, which he interpreted to mean the British would soon be in like case. While Rates silently scoffed at the prophet waving his arms about, a distant rider was spotted spurring his horse towards them. Everyone fell silent as the man approached, travel-stained and weary. He pulled a letter from under his shirt and handed it to General Delaray. It was from General Louis Butter. When General Delaray opened it and read it, his face lighted up, and in a voice ringing with emotion, he said, Men, believe me, the proud enemy is humbled. Die trotze fianza nek is gebeich. Butter had explained that Kitchener had sought peace terms, but we know that the terms were never accepted. Still, the effect this had on the men and women who witnessed the event was instantaneous. Coming immediately upon the prophecy, it was a dramatic moment, and I was impressed, says the young Rates, even though I suspected that van der Ensberg had stage-managed the whole scene. These tidings created a stir throughout the Boers congregated around the lake. Men spoke excitedly, women planned the return to their farms, but then their hopes were dashed when they were told afterwards that the peace talks had collapsed. It was more war, but von Rensburg was now thought of as a gifted prophet, a true Israelite in the mode of Moses. South Africa continues to experience these prophets in the 21st century. Unfortunately, most in the modern day are charlatans who eat live snakes and then pretend to bring the dead to life in comical social media videos where a corpse of a man can be seen breathing before he rises from his coffin. If they actually knew how to use smoke and mirrors more effectively, perhaps we could rate them as entertainers in the mode of vaudeville, all for a quick buck. Yet in March 1901, people sought help from other dimensions in this terrible war, so we can understand how the wild-eyed von Rensburg became such a powerful presence. Rates himself was looking a bit wild too, and he admits it. By this time my clothes had uh, fallen from my body, and my entire wardrobe consisted of a blanket, 
and a pair of sandals. So that it was towards the end of March by now, with winter coming on, I felt the cold pretty severely. This was happening around the country. Clothing had now become a luxury. General Darare noticed Raitz's poverty and probably wanting to maintain some sort of decorum provided him with a pair of breeches and a coat. What the youngster really wanted though was a horse. Famous lines from Shakespeare must surely have passed through his mind at this point. His kingdom for a horse. After a week, near the end of March, Delare decided to move camp and ordered everyone to walk 10 miles to the west where he had found better grazing. And as we'll hear next week, it was here that the British catch the Boers by surprise one misty morning. Meanwhile, English Commander-in-Chief Kitchener had already set his drives loose on the Boer farms in the eastern Transvaal and in March his drives arrived in the south and west, as Rates had already discovered during his trip with the Doppers. Kitchener had divided the colony into four districts, each under the control of a general. Their instructions were to deal promptly with any enemy concentration and to clear the enemy country systematically of horses, cattle and supplies. He had devised a complicated plan which was to be carried out along an imaginary line from Bultfontein near Johannesburg and Vinburg in the Free State. In the centre, General Knox's columns began moving along the railway line. To the south, General Littleton had three columns, two of which were commanded by officers who later became famous. One was Bruce Hamilton, the other Douglas Haig. In the east, General Elliot had columns moving between Bethlehem and the Vaal River, while General Rundle was moving south to meet him. Two large pincer movements, all designed to squeeze the Boers against the Vaal River. De La Rey's movements had worried the British. They heard about the plan for the Boers to meet up in the Free State, and then a possible mass invasion of the Cape Colony. But the British were themselves to be surprised by a sudden rising anger back home. Boer women and children, 60,000 in total, who had been herded into concentration camps, began to die in large numbers. The weather was changing in South Africa. It's autumn. The days can be balmy, 70, 80 degrees Fahrenheit on the high felt, the high plains, 30 degrees centigrade. But at night, in April and May, temperatures drop precipitously. The winds blow and colds and influenza increase. Typhoid, dysentery, malaria, yellow fever, cholera, were all to strike these concentration camps within a month. And, blissfully unaware and uncaring about this, High Commissioner Milner had relocated from Cape Town to Johannesburg. He was also planning to return to England for a short visit later in April, but before then he wanted to get the gold mines going to help pay for war. Ironically, joining him on board the ship Saxon in April would be someone who he referred to as a screamer, a hysterical woman not to be taken seriously. Her name was Emily Hobhouse. Soon after both disembarked in Southampton, Milner was going to find his life greatly complicated by Emily Hobhouse, as we'll see. She had already visited the concentration camps, and what she saw had horrified her. We've had a little foretaste in episode 67. What awaited the Boers in these camps and the British on the Haarfeld was one of the coldest winters in living memory, which compounded the problems. As you'll hear, blizzards were to sweep across the open plains in June, July and August, killing British soldiers as they slept in the open bivouacs and freezing women and children to death in these camps. But that was two months away. Meanwhile, in Johannesburg, Milner was sitting in his HQ, which was a large mansion on the north side of the first hill rising between Johannesburg and Pretoria. Milner had laughingly referred to the splendid red-tiled villa 
as similar to the residence of a prosperous tradesman at Hendon or Chislehurst. It had its back to the mine shafts of Johannesburg and faced the magnificent rolling country towards the Machalisberg, where Rates had just made his way toiling without a horse along with the Doppers. Milner's mansion was known as Sunnyside, and it belonged to the Werner Bight Gold Mining Company. Milner loved the fact that it faced north towards home, England. It also faced towards the sun, which makes a difference in winter on the Haarfeld. Unlike Northern Hemisphere homes, in South Africa, people prefer their houses to face north instead of south so that the winter sunshine can be harvested for heat. And behind Sunnyside, the mine chimneys were beginning to smoke again and the wheels on the mine heads were turning once more. More than 350 mine stamps were in operation. There was a skeleton staff of black and white workers. The mines were producing gold again. Yes, it was a trickle compared to the flood just before war broke out in October 1899, but the mines were now showing signs of life. The trickle would indeed return to a flood. So too, the number of British troops arraigned across the landscape, tracking down the bitter enders, the bitter enders, those who wanted to fight on against their English enemy in a cycle of violence that was to become more and more vengeful. So with that, we'll end this week. Please remember to rate the podcast on iTunes, and if you want contact me on Twitter at Des Latham. I'm uploading new pictures once I've scanned them onto our website, abwarpodcast.com. Please look out for that. So until next week, goodbye. Daar onder die mil is bij de groen.